Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, So if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hey, and welcome to the very first English episode of Sipur Israeli, or Israel Story, here on Vox Tablet. I'm Mishi Harman, hi hi, and well, maybe the simplest way of introducing what we'll be doing here on the show is to play you something. Hey Mishi. Yeah, hi. Hi. Okay, it seems like we're recording and everything's going beautifully over here. That, in case you don't recognize the voice, is Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, one of the most popular radio shows in the States. I wanted to check in with him about some super important business. So, Ira, how, how did you feel when you heard that there was this Israeli copycat? I felt fine about it, actually. I felt flattered. I don't know if you remember this, but the first time we met, I, I came into your office and you know, I was kind of starstruck and, and, and really excited. And, and I walked into your office. And, and do, you, do you remember what, what happened? I totally remember. I, I, said, I said to you, like, oh, are you the Israelis who are ripping off our show? <laughs> I had heard about you. And is that how you felt, that we were the Israelis that were ripping off your show? Well, it isn't a question of how I feel. That's just a statement of fact. You are the Israelis who are ripping (laughs) off our show. So, yeah, that's us. 
My best friend Roy and I were huge This American Life fans in college. And when we came back to Israel to begin our PhDs, we thought we might as well give it a try. An Israeli This American Life. We teamed up with two old childhood friends, Yochai and Shai, and began working on a podcast. And honestly, at, at most, we expected our friends and family to indulge us, give it a listen, and hopefully pat us on the back. And that's exactly what happened after our first episode. But then someone with like 5,000 Facebook friends shared the second episode, and it kind of went viral. Now, I know, this sounds a little bit like North Korea, but Israel only has two national talk radio stations. One belongs to the government, and the other to the army. So, just about then, I saw the head of the army radio, Galei Tzal, at some event in Jerusalem. I totally ambushed him, and while he was gobbling down some pigs in a blanket, I pitched our show. Somehow, amazingly, it worked. They agreed to run a pilot, and then gave us one of the most listened-to slots of the week— our first season had 11 episodes, and before we knew it, actually also had quite a few fans. Now, this coming weekend actually, our second season in Hebrew will go on air. Working on the show, we've met amazing people and heard funny, touching, incredible stories. So we began thinking about bringing some of these stories abroad to people who, believe it or not, still don't speak Hebrew. Lucky for us, Tablet Magazine loved the idea. So here we are, once a month, for the next six months, bringing you stories by and about Israelis. You won't hear about BB, the war in Gaza, or the Iranian bomb. Instead, it will just be regular, everyday stories of an Israel people rarely encounter. Typically, we'll have a theme and several stories about that theme. Sound familiar? And today, in honor of our attempt to create the This American Life of Israel, our theme is Faking It. There's this Simpson episode where Lisa is trying to rack up extracurriculars to get into college. When it turns out she sucks at fencing, Marge tries to cheer her up. Sweetie, you could still go to McGill. The Harvard of Canada. Anything that's the something of the something isn't really the anything of anything. <laughs> Here's Ira again. <laughs> Yeah, so so you're feeling that about like being the this American life of Israel. That that's 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 what you feel. I mean, the fact is, like, what does it mean to be the this American life of Israel? It just means you're doing narrative stories with with characters and funny moments and moments where there's some feeling. I mean, I don't feel like we we own that as a radio show. Like that's why that's why it didn't bother me that um there would be an Israeli knockoff of this American life. Like, like, or, I mean, I hope that isn't mean to say that, but like, it didn't, like, it didn't, it seemed like that seems good. If there was like a Korean one and a Japanese one and a British one, like that would all be, that's fine with me. Like, I don't care. So with that, let's begin. Today, we have three stories of people in completely different contexts and periods trying to fake, pretend, mimic, forge, whatever you want to call it. In the spirit of total emulation, act one, truly fake. Depending on who you talk to, Moshe, Moses, Wilhelm Shapira is either a trickster of epic proportions or the most unlucky fellow you can imagine. His story came to be known as the Shapira Affair, and many people are completely absorbed with it. Micha Shagrir is one of them. He's making a documentary film about Shapira and gives us the nutshell version. The time is 1883. A Jew from Jerusalem, actually a converted Jew, comes to 
uh, London to the British Museum. It sounds like a joke, but he brings with him 15 scrolls on which he's claiming uh, his original text of Deuteronomy. There is a big excitement. The museum offers him one million pounds. One million pounds at 1883, it's... Uh, hundred of millions of dollars today, but uh, the museum people are saying that they still have to make some researches, and then they come back to him and say, no business. We found uh, your past. You are a forger. Uh, we even checked the text and the scrolls themselves, a forgery. The man leaves England, desperate, uh, and after a year, uh, kills himself with a bullet in his head. We always think that fake and real are, are opposites. You know, if something is fake, by definition it isn't real, and, and vice versa. But, well, the Shapira affair... This story of a man selling a fake manuscript and getting caught shows us that sometimes reality is just much more complicated than that. Because the thing is that not everyone believes he actually was a forger. They think he was an artist or a man giving people what they wanted or, and this is the most intriguing possibility of all, someone who got his hands on one of the most significant real artifacts of all time and managed to lose it. I didn't know it when I began researching the story, but this saga, Shapiromania, as many of the people I talk to call it, continues to stir up really intense emotions, even though it took place more than 130 years ago. I'm following for many, many years. I am like a secret detective. Every day I think about him, or I do something that is related to the... Uh, to his story. I go with him everywhere and he is with me in the archives, in the libraries, in Europe, in Israel, in Australia. So, fake? Not fake? Let's start from the beginning. In 1855, Moshe Shapira, a good Jew from an Orthodox family, left his home in the Ukrainian village of Kamanyets Podolsky and set off on a long journey with his grandfather. They were going to the Holy Land, where, rumors had it, the Messiah was about to make an appearance. En route, somewhere in Romania, the grandpa died, and Shapira started mingling with all kinds of types. Most of them were representatives of an organization with a really catchy name, the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. They promised him, with all their might, that the Messiah had actually already come, and that his name was Jesus. Moshe was slowly convinced. And when he arrived in Jerusalem a year later, he was a Christian and his name was now Moses Wilhelm. In Jerusalem, he joined a small community of Protestants and converted Jews. My name is Rechav Rubin and I'm known by uh, most friends as Buni. Buni is a professor of geography at the Hebrew University. Well, 
there was in Jerusalem a group, kind of a social community of European people. Some of them were missionaries. Other were uh, scholars who uh, were involved in the study of the history of the Holy Land. But Shapira wasn't really interested in the mission, or for that matter, in research. He wanted to be a businessman. So he opened a small souvenir shop in the Christian quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. Irit Salman, a true Shapirologist, who even curated an exhibit about him, explains. Well, he had one of the first shops of uh, antiquity uh, in Jerusalem. So he sold everything which he could uh, to the tourists. He sold Bibles, he sold uh, dried flowers from the Holy Land, which the German uh, pilgrims liked very much, and memorabilia from any kind. And he sold, as a matter of fact, the illusions that they touch history because they grew on the Bible and on the New Testament. And all of a sudden, they hold in their hands something which maybe also Jesus Christ uh, kept it. So it was very, very strong. In addition to those kinds of souvenirs, which still fill the shops of the old city, Shapira began selling antiquities that Bedouins from the area found and brought to him. His shop was a huge hit, and he became one of the best-known merchants in town. It was a very famous uh, shop. It was even written on the front of the shop that he's the representative of the British Museum, not just a, a regular shop. In the Baedeker tourist guide from the 19th century, it was written that this is the best antique shop in Palestine. Shapira's life, as we say in Israel, was dvash, all honey. He married Rosetta, a devout German nurse. They had two girls, Augusta and Miriam, and his business was booming. And then, one hot summer day in August 1868, a discovery made in Divan, east of the Jordan River, changed his life. Local Bedouins had found a large basalt stone, inscribed with markings that sort of looked like footprints of a chicken. Shapira rushed to see the stone, as did another archaeology enthusiast, a young French diplomat by the name of Charles Clermont Ganon, who would, very quickly, turn out to be Shapira's arch-nemesis. It seemed odd to the Bedouins that all these distinguished Europeans were so excited about the rock and were fighting amongst themselves over who would pay a higher price to buy it. They were sure it had to contain some valuable treasure inside. So one night, they rolled the stone into a bonfire, poured cold water over it, and smashed it to smithereens. They were pretty disappointed. The crazy Europeans, it seemed, had been fighting over a plain black rock. No treasure. But Clermont Ganot had had his aide copy the inscription before it was smashed. And when he deciphered the lines, it turned out it really was a treasure. The 34 lines on the Meshastili, that's what they call the stone, described a series of wars between the king of Moab and the Israelites, the exact same war described in the second book of Kings. Now, that might not sound super exciting today, but this was one of the very earliest external independent accounts that verified a biblical tale. The craze about finding archaeological proof of the Bible began. Everyone wanted Moabite artifacts. 
Very soon, a tourist guide, Arabic tourist guide, came to him after he opened the shop and made him an offer he couldn't resist. He said, whatever you sell to the tourists during the day, I can complete during the night, which means um, to make fakes. Here's Buni Rubin, the geographer. Well... We don't, we don't know for sure. I can only make a, a guess that if the demand was uh, going up and up and up, then a businessman like Shapiro wanted to have enough stock in his um, shop in order to uh, supply this uh, demand for antiques. So uh, I guess if he couldn't get enough antiques from proper sources or, or kosher pieces, then it may well be that he uh, thought how to supply this demand by producing or actually faking them. Shapira had seen the Moabite letters on the Meshastili. And very soon in the market um, started to appear clay pieces with unknown uh, letters that nobody could uh, read, which means he created a new culture, which called Moabitica. He liked it very much, and he started to get from the Bedouin who used to cross the Jordan uh, and to bring all kinds of antiques, part of them authentic. Almost overnight, Shapira's collection of Moabite clay artifacts became famous all over the world. Articles were written about it, new theories were based on it, people said the collection was priceless, and Shapira himself became a major celebrity within the antiquities world. But if you look at Shapira's fakes today, even if you know nothing about archaeology, they look like something that a fifth grader made in an arts and crafts workshop. It's hard to imagine how these statues, figurines, and ceramic human heads with gibberish inscriptions copied directly from the letters of the Meshastili fooled the biggest experts of the time. But I guess we can be more forgiving. After all, they had nothing to compare it with. So most people just believe that that was what Moabite archaeology looked like. Today, when we look at those pieces, it looks so clumsy and so unprofessional. All the <laughs> stick the letters or the sculptures of head of people from stone, from clay. They look so strange. Today, if you look at it, I look at it, not professional, we would say, ah, this is a fake. But at that time, nobody knew it, so nobody could identify it. Everybody wanted to believe. And Shapira totally took advantage of that willingness to believe. In 1873, he convinced the Archaeological Museum in Berlin, the Altis Museum, to buy 1,700 pieces from his collection. For those who were skeptic, he invited to come with him to an expedition, and he took them to the desert or to Transjordan, and the Bedouins prepared for him in advance uh, the area where he used to take them, as if they are going to excavate. And they just scratched the ground and they found pieces of uh, pottery and archaeologic uh, remains, and he prepared the visit very, very well. The only problem with Shapira's pieces was that most of them were, we've seen, 
completely bogus. But even today, there are people who don't exactly see them that way. Uri Katz, a collector of Shapira fakes, for example, has a soft spot for him. It's kind of an original maverick or biblical outsider artist or something like that. The artifacts that he was selling were really something new. It was not a copy of anything which we knew before. Shapira or whoever made the artifacts were some, some people of, of some originality because they invented the, the, the artifacts, they, they invented the, the shape and whatever. He created something new in, in some way. Micha, who we heard at the beginning, basically agrees. No, he was not a chronicle swindler. He was not a real swindler, but yes, he had his tricks. When the folks at the Berlin Museum realized the artifact's true nature, so to speak, they weren't amused. They were embarrassed and immediately hid the collection deep in the storage rooms. Of course, the man who proved to the experts in Berlin that these were all fakes was none other than Shapira's biggest rival, Clermont Ganot. Once the forgery was discovered, Shapira and his collection became sort of a laughingstock. He returned to his shop and to the simple, silly souvenirs. But, as happens, time passed, and people began to forget the saga. A few years later, his tarnished reputation almost completely rehabilitated, Shapira came out with a declaration that immediately rocked the entire world. He claimed that he held 17 parchment scrolls inscribed with an unknown version of the book of Deuteronomy, the final book of the Torah, written in an early Hebrew script. Perhaps these were the original scrolls that Moses received from God, he hinted. Or maybe a version written down at the time of Jesus by a retiring sect in the Judean desert, where, he said, the Bedouins who brought him the scrolls had found them. Obviously, this was huge. The book of Deuteronomy. Maybe Moses' own personal copy? But there was one more surprise. Here's Micha, the filmmaker. In the book that Shapira brought, there are 11 commandments. What is the 11th? Do love your friend as you love yourself. Love thy neighbor. What does it mean? Is it a very Jewish version, or is it a very Christian version? With that tantalizing puzzle unresolved, Shapira began touring all of Europe with his scrolls. And you gotta understand, this was front-page news in all the biggest newspapers around the continent for an entire year. The whole world, it seemed, was following the saga of Shapira and his precious scrolls. He brought it to the German, and the German, as you remember, bought already 1,700 uh, fake pieces from him. And after a few months, they thought about it and they decided not to buy it. And then he came to the British Museum. They believed him. The British were very excited from it because they loved the Bible. Two of the scrolls were exhibited to the excited public, who queued up for hours to get a peek. Even the British Prime Minister, Gladstone, came to see them and tried to help raise the funds. The sum of money he asked was unbelievable. Million sterling in 1883. Today, it's also a lot of money, but then it was, whew, 
In fact, he said to his daughter before he went to his last journey, when I come back, you will be the richest girl in the world. But then, of course, our French friend, Clermont Ganot, rushed over from Paris. Despite the fact that there was no tunnel and no uh, fast, uh, fast train, but it was uh, fast enough to, for, from one day to the other. Then Clermont Ganot arrived. The same Clermont Ganot which we met before in Jerusalem. Clermont Ganot came, he looked at the, at the scrolls, and then he said, it, it, this is forgery. And he said that it's the most chutzpedic fake in the history. <laughs> yes. The British press was wild, the story was everywhere. They didn't stop to write about it day and night in all the newspapers. The English got a cold feet and they, they told Shapira, sorry, we, cannot, we don't take the scrolls. Even for a tough survivor like Shapira, this was a really hard hit. He went from place to place, from country to country, all over Europe. And in March 84, he arrived to a small hotel in Rotterdam and committed suicide. And what happened to the scrolls that caused a worldwide frenzy and were nearly sold for a million pounds? The scroll afterwards was sold in a fair to a collector who bought it for 16 sterling. And they say that his library was burned and they never, they were never found. End of story? Well, not exactly. A little more than 60 years after Shapira killed himself in that Rotterdam motel, disgraced, humiliated, and penniless, a Bedouin shepherd, Muhammad Adib, was out grazing his flock near Qumran, in the north of the Dead Sea. When one of his sheep ran into a cave and wouldn't come back, the shepherd threw a little rock which hit something that made a strange sound. That's how the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, exactly in the same area where Shapira claimed that the Bedouins had found his scrolls. A new, completely horrifying possibility emerged. Could it be that Shapira's scrolls, that were maligned and destroyed, were real after all? To be really honest, there is a small, a tiny, like this, what if? And what if these pieces, which are lost now, were not faked? What if part of them was authentic? Then we lost something which might have been very, very important. How can we know? How can we ever know how to deal, how, how, to, how to walk out this tiny little what-if. The tiny what-if, I think, will, will be an open uh, question for, forever. <laughs> it's an, it remains a, a secret, and it will remain, I'm afraid. This will, will keep us on, continuing to... To ask ourselves, was it a fake or not? Yes, in, in, as a matter of fact, in my, in my mind, the wonderful thing is that there was no way to find physically the, the artifact, the strips. The story of the, of the scrolls uh, remains uh, un, unsolved. And, and I'm, I, I like it like this way.
it's not our it's not our job to solve everything and I like it to to remain as it is in one final ironic twist that only a forger like Shapiro would really appreciate his fakes have now themselves become very valuable collector's items in fact today people talk of real Shapira fakes and that's what he read called her exhibit about him truly fake I think it's a great name but In English, it's truly fake. And in Hebrew, ziyuf amiti, because it was really fake. <laughs> so it's a real fake. And who knows? Maybe somewhere in the backroom workshop of a souvenir store in the narrow streets of Jerusalem's bustling Christian quarter, someone right now is sitting down and making fake Shapira fakes. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's something you should probably know about before we begin this next story. And that thing is called Gimelim. Gimelim are sick days from the army. And believe it or not, in the land of startup nation and perennial peace talks, they're pretty much the most coveted item out there. If you think I'm exaggerating, I'll just say that even Google backs me up on this one. The second most asked how-to question in Google in Hebrew last year? Yup, you've got it. How do I get Gimelim? Getting Gimelim has practically become its own art form. Some schmear toothpaste or dish soap in their eyes. Others drink a mixture of cigarette ashes and chalk. And the most masochistic ones, those who I guess will just do anything at all to get a few days off, tie a potato to their arm or leg overnight. It sucks up all the calcium. And then with a little tap of a spoon, they break their own bones. Yochai Meital, one of the producers of our show, tried a different approach. Act 2, Buzzkill. About two and a half years into my IDF army service, after a particularly grueling couple of months of training, I got a regila, a week-long vacation to go and rest at home. On the first morning, I woke up in my own bed in Haifa. It was late and no one was around. I stretched, made myself a cup of coffee, and went to sit outside on the porch. I was completely relaxed, savoring this rare moment of freedom. That's when the phone rang. Now, this is never really a good sign. Nothing good has ever come from a phone ringing just when you're finally in some kind of zen moment. I picked it up with more than a bit of trepidation. But it wasn't as I feared my commander calling me back to the base. On the other end of the line was Molly, an American girl I knew from summer camps growing up. Molly had always been this sort of out-of-my-league kind of dream, yet here she was, on the phone with, with me... And as she kept talking, my heart rate steadily increased because what she was saying was basically a miracle. She was in Israel for a junior year abroad, it turned out, and all of her close friends were, like me, too busy in the army to, to hang out. 
She was dying to get out of Jerusalem, maybe for a trip to the north, and wanted to know if I had any free time. In a very lame attempt to sound nonchalant, I managed to squeeze some sort of meek, sure, and before I even finished my coffee, Molly was on a bus to Haifa. I, on the other hand, went into full panic mode. I ran around the house trying to put together everything a young Israeli guy needs in order to impress an American girl. I was a soldier, so I figured that I had to show off my wilderness prowess and ruggedness. So I scrambled together a camping stove, a couple of cast iron pots, strong black coffee. I begged my parents for the car, threw everything in the trunk, and on the way down to the station, called a friend from a kibbutz in the north and pleaded with him to reveal the location of a couple of secluded springs in the area. I pulled into the central station, and just as I was rehearsing my opening lines one last time, I saw her, with his big mane of curly brown hair heading in my direction, smiling. Despite the last-minuteness of it all, the trip was a huge success. Beautiful and romantic, I played the role pretty well. I took her to a hidden pond east of the Jordan River, where there's a 15-meter drop from a cliff into the water. Of course, I had to impress her, so I jumped. But when a few seconds later I looked up, and saw her flying in the air too, right after me, I knew I was in love. I could even imagine the cheesy Hollywood soundtrack. At the end of the week, I headed back to my army base, all dreamy and euphoric, grinning from ear to ear, and just, I imagine, super annoying to be around. But my commanding officer found a quick way to wipe the constant smile off my face. Yochai, he called me over, you're going to officer's training. Now, basically, the last thing I wanted at that point was to go to officer's course. I'd just fallen hopelessly for a girl who was only going to be in Israel for a few short months, and everyone knew that officer's training, which was tucked away in some godforsaken base down south near Mitzpeh Ramon, sucked as far as vacations were concerned. But my commander's face made it clear that this wasn't exactly a suggestion. The next day, I was in the middle of the desert. Rumor has it that Bad Echad, that's what the cadet school is called, was built according to blueprints of an American prison. The bare concrete buildings form a square around a central yard, there are guard towers in each corner, and the head commander's office with its big windows overlooks it all. It would be more than four weeks before my first vacation, and I roamed around the base feeling trapped and depressed. Basically, I was in jail, and Molly, well, she was out there in the real world in Jerusalem, hanging out with friends and drinking iced coffees in the German colony. In Bad Echad, on the other hand, the days crept by slowly way too slowly. I dragged myself from one boring warfare theory class to another night of guarding remote ammunition bunkers. It all felt completely pointless. I chain-smoked whole packets of Noblest, the cheap local brand, and watched the summer just wither away. At some point in the middle of this gloomy ordeal, Molly told me she was going back to the States the following week, and that would be that. Suddenly, I couldn't tolerate another moment in this stupid officer's course. I just had to see her one last time, and the only solution I could think of was getting Gimelim, a sick pass. But the thing is, I was sort of a straight arrow, kind of highly motivated, frankly, nerdy, by-the-book soldier. During basic training, I would get punished because I would do things like report that I had misplaced my helmet or sat down for five minutes while guarding, things that no one would have ever known. Needless to say, I was kind of clueless when it came to faking Gimelim. So I called my good friend, Ariel. I remember that just hearing your request, uh, I was thinking to myself, wow, man, you really must be into this chick. Ariel is the kind of friend that you can call with any problem at any time of day, especially if it involves a chance to game the system. I always thought of you as kind of upstanding perfect soldier, you know? 
And there you were, you know, instead of uh, excelling in officer's course, you were trying to screw them and get all these gimelim. I got to say that I was very, very proud. I thought that maybe, after all, I taught you something. Ariel agreed to help me out, but first made me swear to absolute secrecy. Then he told me to meet him outside the base that night at 1 a.m. An uncle of my friend was sort of a, f- a B-therapist in Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is a little settlement in the West Bank. B-therapy? Yes, yes, B-therapy. It's sort of uh, like acupuncture, you know, like what the Chinese doctor does. But uh, instead of uh, sticking needles like the Chinese dude, he gets the bees to sting you. This guy had all the beehives in his backyard. And uh, what he would do was he would catch the bee with uh, these long, long, long wooden tweezers. And then he would hold it to your skin. Then it would uh, inject its poison into you. And after a few hours, the whole area would swell up like magic. So... Uh, just about the same time, uh, a miracle happened. My parents got these wooden uh, tweezers for a gift. You know, the kind that uh, the Americans used to take bread out of the toaster or something like that? You know about the problem with uh, how you're not supposed to put a metal fork in the toaster? So Ariel adopted his friend's uncle's technique. And instead of using the tweezers to get toast out of the toaster, he began using them to help his friends get out of the army for a few days. Turned out he had done this before. I wasn't his first client. In those days, I knew where all the beehives in Jerusalem area was. So what I'd do, I'd go at night with the guy who wanted the gimelim, and I'd uh, walk straight up to the beehive, catch the bee, or sometimes two, and sting him. Uh, you need to understand that I was always with the patient, and I would bring him all the way to the beehive, but you were stuck in the south. Uh, I wasn't really sure what to do and how I was going to handle it. But Ariel wasn't one to give up. The method was foolproof, he thought, and it would work anywhere. So he waited for nightfall when the bees were drowsy, drove up to a hive on a kibbutz on the way, collected a few bees into a plastic bag, and headed south. But an hour into the drive, he noticed that the bees had stopped buzzing. They were dead. He turned the car around, drove back to the kibbutz, and this time he found some jar to put them in, and learning his lesson, poked a few holes in the lid. With a new set of bees on board, Ariel was off to save me. Not all the bees survived the ride, but I guess he had counted on there being some casualties. As for me, I had no idea what his plan was. All I knew was that I had to meet Ariel at the bus station outside the base at exactly one. And most importantly, Ariel kept stressing this point over and over. And the only rule about this is not to talk to anyone about it. This is the biggest secret in the world. I tried to concentrate on faking a kind of nonchalant confidence as I walked right out of the base, too quickly for the guard to ask where I was going. Ariel was at the bus stop, as promised, so was the buzzing jar. He was all business. Evidently, this was a delicate procedure. You need to understand that the problem was that we couldn't risk you getting too many gimelim because more than one week and you automatically be expelled from the course. And you didn't want that. So we had to get just the right amount, which was a very tricky thing to do. Anyway, uh, so I decided that instead of stinging you in the knee, which was the usual procedure, I would sting you in your foot. I wish I could tell you that, like a true officer, at that very moment in Ariel's car, I considered all the consequences. Possibly getting kicked out of the course, or maybe even out of my unit. But to be honest, I wasn't thinking at all. The only thing going on in my mind was the stubborn determination to see Molly one last time. So, with his toast wooden tweezers, Ariel carefully plucked three exhausted bees, one after the other from the jar, and each one of them sacrificed their life on the exact same spot on my ankle. Sure, It hurt a little, 
but it was a small price to pay. I waddled back to the base and climbed up to my bunk. Pretty soon, I started burning up and hallucinating, a side effect, I guess, of all that bee venom. I imagined that Molly appeared at my bedside and held my hand until I fell asleep. In my dream, I saw myself sitting high up in the stands above the central yard of the base. A military band was playing marching songs. It was the graduation ceremony of the officer's course. All my unit and friends and family had shown up, only to discover that I had been kicked out of the course long ago. I woke up startled and, and sweaty, but when I looked down at my foot, a huge smile spread on my face. My ankle was the size of a cantaloupe. I limped over to the infirmary where I told them that I had tripped and fallen down a flight of stairs. The medic took one look at my foot and sent me straight to the ER in Beersheba, the closest big city. At the hospital, I waited impatiently as an elderly Russian orthopedic surgeon closely examined my x-rays. He stroked his Trotsky-esque goatee for a while, turned to me and proclaimed, Just as I suspected, you have a broken foot. Now, up until this moment, I was fairly calm. Things were going exactly according to plan. But suddenly, everything seemed to be going too well. A broken foot was serious. It was worth like a month of gimelim, if not more. And I would be kicked out of the course for sure. I was still trying to formulate a plan of action when the doctor sat next to me and started casting my foot. Twenty minutes later, I was at the Beersheva Central bus station, with a cast all the way from my toes to my knee, and, oh yeah, two weeks of gimelim, which he said would surely need to be renewed a few times. I was worried that I had gone too far, but I pushed all of my concerns to the side and concentrated on the one important task at hand, getting to Mali. It's a two-hour ride from Beersheva to Jerusalem on the 446 bus, and just around Kiryat Gat, I had had it with this itchy cast. When no one was looking, I took out my pocket knife and sawed the cast off. As soon as I got off the bus, I discreetly tossed it in some trash can. This time it was Molly who came to meet me at the station. My ankle was still huge and she asked me about it, but true to my word, I kept silent. We went to the Machneuda market together, bought some vegetables and headed back to her apartment where I made us potato leek soup with Tom Waits singing in the background. If you live it up, you won't live it down. So she left Molly real son. A few days later, she flew back to the States, and I reappeared at the base, sans cast, begging them to let me return early. I mumbled something about getting a second opinion, and how it turned out that the initial doctor had made a mistake, I had only sprained my ankle, but apparently, all my bones were intact. Everyone at Badechad were just super impressed by my motivation and honesty. Returning early from Gimelim, it was so unheard of that they agreed to take me back. Usually, these kind of stories end with a moral. Something along the lines of cheating is bad and lying never pays off, yada yada yada. But, well, in this case, the truth is, it, it did. I came out of this whole thing utterly unscathed. If anything, I actually learned the opposite lesson. For many years, I, I kept it a secret. Three tiny dots above my right ankle are my only reminder. Ultimately, I finished the course and became an officer. I even went on to serve for five more years. But I never, ever faked a single gimel again. I swear. We'll go ahead and call the cops You don't meet nice girls in coffee shops She said, baby, I still love you Sometimes there's nothing left to do 
Yochai is married now, not to Molly, and even has a two-year-old daughter. Molly is also married and lives in Brooklyn. We called her to see if she even remembers any of this saga. Turns out, she totally does. Yeah, when I want to sound like really awesome, yeah, I tell this story. <laughs> it like feels really like fresh and young and like a telenovela love story of like a time when everything was just just pure. Yochai's self-inflicted injury was entirely superficial. From the outside, it looked incredibly painful, but on the inside he was just fine. Better than fine, even. Our next story is pretty much the exact opposite. Noah Guy from Jerusalem was a world-class composer, but 21 years ago she suffered what she now refers to as a transparent injury. To anyone looking at her from the outside, she seemed completely fine, but on the inside she was, and still is, anything but. Shai Satran, one of the producers of our show, brings us her story. Act 3, Disharmonia. Hello, Shai. I met Noah Guy, an Israeli composer, in her Manhattan apartment. Well, when people ask me how did you end up in New York, I always say by accident. We'll get back to how and why Noah ended up in New York. But her story starts in her hometown, Jerusalem. I was born in Jerusalem and uh, grew up there. And from very, very early age was attracted to music and uh, studied music. The fact that Noah was so drawn to music was kind of surprising. It's hard to say how Noah became so much into it. This is Avner, Noah's brother. Uh, our parents did not expose us to classical music. Our father was uh, injured in the independence war and had um, always had headaches, so the house has to be quiet. And a loud noise would disturb him a lot. And uh, many times he would leave home just when Noah was playing, which was not very much encouraging. And uh, in spite of that, she was very stubborn and continued to practice, to learn more. So music was, in a way, uh, sort of a noise. But uh, nevertheless, I continued, and uh, that was my passion. After high school, no question what I'm going to do. I went to the Jerusalem Music Academy, uh, finished the theory department and then studied composition privately and then moved to Berlin to study music there. After winning many international prizes, Noah moved back to Israel and was appointed to be the manager of the Jerusalem Music Academy, which, as you can imagine, is quite a big deal. And all in all, her career was booming. And uh, on 93, I came to work with Isaac Stern for a week. Noah's week in New York was supposed to culminate with a concert at Carnegie Hall, a high point of any composer's career. The first few days of the week leading up to that concert were set aside for final rehearsals. On that day, which was a Thursday, we went to his country house in Connecticut to work there in, you know, a, a different environment and quiet environment. I don't remember really much since. It was a country road, it was in the fall, trees were burning colors, beautiful colors. Everything was a little like a dream in a way. I do remember the last thing that uh, I told uh, Isaac that I think that he's driving very, very fast and he looked at me, you know, side look and he used to call me Bubele. So I said, Bubele, don't worry, I'm a very good driver. 
That's the last thing I remember. And on the way, he hit a, a tree and created a very severe uh, injury to my sister. She just got out of the uh, car, pulled him out, and then collapsed. She was evacuated to a New York hospital over there and was in a coma for quite a few days. And that came in a time that she was really getting into the uh, uh, peak of her career. She woke up eight days later. The first thing that I remember is that I was violated, that something really awful happened. I didn't know where I was, I didn't know where I was alive or where I was dead. I was just seeing these half-white creatures hovering over me, touching me as if, you know, without asking permission. And it was an awful way to wake up. I couldn't make sense of anything. It's really tempting to, to give up at a situation like that. But it, it was a decision not to. I'm going to make it. But she made two decisions. One, to stay in life. Second one was that she'll be okay and she'll be able to function as a normal person. That second decision to lead a normal life would require tremendous efforts and many years. I was paralyzed on the whole right side of the body. You know, I had shoulder injury, hip injury, all kinds of injuries, but the main thing was the brain injury. She was then with one of the uh, physicians. They just put a pencil in front of her and asked her, what is that? And she could not say the word. She could not identify. And then I burst in tears, and it was the first time for her to see me really crying. It's not easy to explain because after I got a little better and, and I was able to communicate and I began to, to leave again, people didn't realize what really was going on, that for me to hear a sentence and remember the whole sentence and formulate an answer was an enormous task and that's why I call this uh, transparent injury because from the outside I, I looked fine, I was talking, I was uh, nice, I was smiling, I was polite and inside it was this struggle to go on, not to, you know, not to let the injury shut me down and because it was so taxing. When we talk to each other now and there's some background noise, we can ignore this noise. But she cannot. She has to process it through her mind and decide what she had constructed it. And that takes a lot of energy and very tiring. What Avner just described is a malfunction of sorts of Nas' attention modification system. It can be explained through a famous psychological finding, the cocktail party effect. Imagine you're chatting with someone at a cocktail party. There are many different background noises. Loud music is playing, the sounds of silverware, plates, glasses clinking, not to mention all the other conversations taking place all around. But somehow, we sort of lower the volume on all those background sounds and raise it on our friend's voice. We don't have to think about it. We're not even conscious of it. It just happens. Basically, our brain is constantly filtering out a huge amount of stimuli that simply isn't that important to us. Without these filters, our brain would overload. What does it feel like to sit in a noisy restaurant and just have a conversation with a friend? About half an hour after it begins, I have to leave because it's just bombarding me in, in a way that 
I'm so overwhelmed that at a certain point it's too much. You know, when you talk to me, you listen to me and you're not listening to the environment. And for me, all the sounds are at the same level. It's almost impossible to explain. It's as if I'm on a stage and there's floodlights all the time. There is nothing more important than the others. I can't filter out things because I lost the filters that we usually have of discerning what's important and what not. It's exhausting. This condition of not being able to perceive or focus on more than a single object at a time has a name. Simultagnosia. It's pretty rare, and most of the people who suffer from it, like Noah, experienced some sort of traumatic brain injury. But Noah's case is particularly interesting to researchers because her entire musical perception changed after the accident. The first piece I wanted to listen to was Beethoven's String Quartet. And the first time I, I listened to it, I was blown away because I didn't hear a string quartet. I just heard four laser beams of sounds. They were very clear and totally disconnected. I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't put it together. And I heard the violin, cello, viola, and I didn't know what it was. It was like four parallel independent lines that wouldn't connect. They were totally independent. It was like a piece of puzzle, you know, just scattered on the table. And you know that if you put them in the right pattern, they fit. I couldn't do that. I heard it, I don't know how many times, I heard it again and again in the hope that I will be able to put them together, couldn't put it together. Oliver Sacks, the famous neurologist, dedicated a chapter to Noah in his 2007 book, Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain. Sacks gave Noah's condition a name, disharmonia, the inability to integrate auditory components into a single harmony. Noah, of course, had devoted her life to music, and this was the worst injury she could imagine. In a way, I think that if I would have lost a leg, it would have been easier for me. But the fact that I lost a major part of my identity, of my inner identity, and that I could not recreate it, is cruel and, and painful still today. At a certain point, you know, listening to it again and again, it became like a torture. Despite her disharmonia, Nod discovered that with substantial efforts, she could still appreciate and even create music. For example, when Nod reads sheet music, she can, in a sense, still imagine the music at least in her mind, even though she can't hear the music. It's confusing. Her road to recovery was long and full of hurdles. Today I can put things together, but it's work. I have to do it consciously. It's not that I put a piece of music and I hear the music. No, I, now I'm hearing the string quartet, so listen to them together and... I learned how to do that, but it's still a conscious uh, process. It used to be like language. It was I wrote string quartets. I mean, it's uh, it wasn't even a question. It was a pleasure, and it was uh, my refuge. Noah had to relearn even the most basic skills. I bought a piano, and I couldn't play, and it was a shock. After trying and realizing that I'm not going to um, be able to do it alone, I swallowed my pride and started taking piano lessons. Mm-hmm. 
I had to learn the ear-eye-hand coordination. It was a sort of a gift because I realized how complicated piano playing is. But it was also very frustrating because I lost my ability to play. I lost this connection to music that I had. I could sit and write music like you write a letter. And it was so easy and everything was so enjoyable and so fluent and... I think that's the major thing that if you ask me if something didn't heal, this didn't heal. Everything else is fine. Naw was stubborn. She learned to play the piano again and eventually even went back to composing. In 2006, 13 years after that concert that should have been, Naw finally got her New York City debut. I made three big pieces, hour long each. Actually, it's a musical diary of my recovery. So the first piece is from darkness to waking up. Just broken pieces that are somehow put together and in the end are making some sort of sense. A friend of mine came afterwards and she said, I know you for so many years. It's the first time that I begin to understand what you're going through. At the beginning of the piece, you remember, Noa explained that she ended up in New York by accident quite literally. What she didn't say is that she hasn't been back to Israel since that accident, over 20 years ago. Since then, she cannot travel because all of her balance organs were destroyed, so she's stuck for life in New York City, which is not bad. There are worse places to be stuck at. For a very long time, I thought that, well, another six months of therapy and I'll be back home. I always wanted to go home. She uh, didn't make it back home. She didn't see my father because he was sick and couldn't travel, and she couldn't travel, and he passed away quite a few years ago. She could not be at her daughter's wedding and things like that. And it took many years of therapy and forgiving and accepting to realize, okay, I can't go back. Israel is still, you know, I'm I'm Israeli, but um, it's not painful anymore. But it used to be a real longing to come home. It took a lot of work to realize that a new beginning is the right approach and not hanging on to the past, which is not available. I'm in a place that um, I don't think that I would have been here in this form, being able to look at things and see things and... uh, see the world in a way that I do and uh, in, a, in a, you know, topsy-turvy way, I'm grateful for it. Aside from one Beethoven piece and, well, Chumbawamba, All the music in that story was composed by Noah, who from time to time performs in New York. And that's it, our very first English episode. Great, well, Ira, I really hope hope you listen to our show. I'm excited to hear the ones in English. That'll be be great. I mean, I said before that, that, that for me, the only way that I could have listened to any of your stories in Hebrew is if you would restrict the subject to the blessing of her wine. We were, we were thinking of having a story which was solely the blessing over the wine. 
Good. But, but we weren't sure how popular that would be. <laughs> Just that they, you'd do the blessing of the wine and somebody would be like, Od pa'am, and then they'd do it again, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, where you can find us under the name Israel Story. Follow us on Twitter at, at Israel Story. And go to www.tabletmag.com, where you can find the episodes and links to our episodes in Hebrew. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments, so post on our Facebook page or email us at contact at israelstory.org. And this being our first episode, we're going to start a new tradition. We'll end each episode with a little audio moment from Israel, something that sounds particularly local and beautiful and colorful. We actually want to hear your Israel moment. So if you have a piece of tape from Israel that you really love, send it to us. Again, it's contact at israelstory.org, and we'll air our favorite submissions. Today's Israel moment comes from outside the house of Ilya Stambler in Rishon LeZion. Thanks to the executive producer of our show, Julie Subrin, to the folks at Tablet, Wisconsin Public Radio, and to the best of our knowledge, Alana Newhouse, Adam Teeter, Sarah Ivry, Alyssa Goldstein, Batya Ungar-Sargon, Charles Monroe-Kane, Kirill Owen, Raymond Tungakar, Joe Hardke, Steve Paulson, and Anne Strainchamps. And of course, to Ira Glass and Nancy Updike. I'm Ishi Harman. Israel Story is produced with my dear friends Yochai Meital, Roy Gilron, and Shai Satran. Join us next episode, and meanwhile, Shalom Shalom. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.